You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Good morning, church. If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. I guess it's true for all of us that we didn't have a cottage to go to this weekend. Uh, but thank you for being here this, this weekend and... It's way better what we get to do in opening God's Word. While you're turning there, let me remind you where we've been in our series. We started off at the beginning of summer. Pastor Carl took us to John chapter 10, and uh, we were told to follow the Good Shepherd and see all the benefits of following Jesus. And the next week, um, Matthew 16 was Toby, and he took us to follow the one who would lay down his life. And we saw not only the great cost of following Jesus, but also the great worth behind doing it. The very next weekend, Tim took us to the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, and we were called to see the obedience that's necessary to follow him, and also the barriers and the blessings behind that. And then last weekend, Pastor Greg took us to John chapter 12 and seeing the grain of wheat that would die, and when following Jesus, the fruit that would come as a result of it. So we're carrying on our series this morning in Matthew 9, and what we're going to look at specifically today is the kind of people who follow Jesus. And let me just spill the beans for you right now. The kind of people are people who are very needy. The kind of people that follow Jesus are sick people. In fact, here's the big idea for today's message. It's this, until you realize who you really are, you will never really truly follow Jesus. The kind of people that follow Jesus are needy people, sick people. Let's take a look at our text, Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 9. In fact, there's nothing, nothing worse than coming in the middle of a conversation. So let's, let's jump up and, and read Matthew 9, verse 1 and get into our passage Matthew 9, verse 1 says this, And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some of the people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Sick guy. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And now our text, verse 9. And Jesus passed from there... He saw a man called Matthew, another sick guy, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, and here's the whole point of the passage. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
The kind of people who follow Jesus right here, the kind of people who follow Jesus are sick people. And until you realize who you really are, you will never truly follow Jesus. Okay, let's unpack the text together. Let's get into this. Point number one is this. If you're a note taker, point number one is this. Plain and simple, the life of Matthew. Let's look at the life of Matthew. We'll walk a little bit slower through the verses now and pick them apart and dig a little bit deeper. Uh, We read in verse nine, and Jesus passed on from there, and we should be asking, okay, there is where? There we read earlier on, he's up in this this place, but we don't know where it is. Other gospel writers tell us that it's in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum. Capernaum by the sea. Now let me pull up this great map that I found. Capernaum by the sea is found in the north. You've got the Dead Sea to the south with with, uh, Jerusalem to the outside. 80 miles to the north, you could go along the Jordan River, is along the Sea of of Galilee to the north is the city of Capernaum. That's about 80 miles from Jerusalem and about 5,000 plus miles from where we are sitting right now. And we are reading that Jesus is leaving this city. He's on his way out of town. He's done, except that he's not done. As he passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now that warrants some clarification when we talk about tax booth. This is ancient Israel, remember? It has been conquered by Rome, and it is currently being held by Rome by force. Israel is not a happily occupied province. It has been conquered by Rome, and now this backwater, nowheresville place in the Roman Empire, this hot, dusty place, is angry about its Roman oppressors. It does not want to be here. It does not want to be occupied. It does not want all this Gentile filth walking around. But it is in the Roman Empire. And because it's a part of the Roman Empire, and under Roman rule, it's getting taxed. It's paying. And under Roman rule, you would pay. You would pay if you have land. You would pay if you have kids. You would pay if you have to transport goods from one province to another province, or get this, from one city to another city. You have to pay if you are living and breathing. It doesn't even matter if you're a Roman citizen. If you are living and breathing in the Roman Empire, then you pay taxes. You know, we think we are taxed heavily, but these guys are taxed very heavily. Remember that this is a subsistence culture that we're reading about. This is a culture that has one outfit, one article of clothing. It has a one-room house. Many people will only have one goat or one sheep at most. It's a subsistence scratching along culture, and what they had was being taken away by the Romans. But that's not all. To make matters worse, if you're living in Jerusalem, if you're living in Judea at this time in this province, you're getting taxed by the Romans, but you're also getting taxed as a Jew by Jerusalem as well. You pay tax on the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple. And if you're a devout Jew, you're going five, sometimes ten times a year. Every time you're going to the temple, you're dropping tax in. You're paying tax. In fact, you'll keep paying this tax as a Jew long after the temple has been burned down to the ground and incinerated in 70 AD by the Romans who are sick and tired of your uprisings. You'll still pay for tax, even though there's no one it's going to. So you're living in Judea and you're Jewish, you're paying to the Romans and you're paying to Jerusalem for the temple. Tax, 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 tax. But that's not the worst part of it. To make matters worse, the guys who collect taxes buy their office. Uh Uh-oh. 
See, what, what tax collection was was really a first century pyramid scheme. Have you, have you seen a pyramid scheme before? There's some fat cat in Rome and says, hey, by the way, we need to tax the province of Judea. Do we have any prefects who would like to make some extra money? And prefects, you know, whatever his name is, Gladius to scam us, he raises his hand and says, yes, in his white robe and toga and big belly eating grapes, says, yeah, I'd like to tax Judea. Never been there, but I'll do it. And he says, okay, well, the Roman Empire says, okay, well, it's going to cost you 2,000 denarii to get that. Okay, so here you go. I'll give you 1,000 and 1,000 coming soon. You got it. No problem. Well, now this fat cat's going to go out and he's going to hire three officials and he's going to spread that out. Okay, now you need to raise for me 1,000 denarii. Can you do that? Yes, I'll do that. Okay, so then they pay him and he collects the money. You, think, you see where this is going? The math is going. And now all of a sudden, prefect in Rome has now made 1,000 denarii without even stepping foot into the province of Judea. These guys however, have now out $1,000 or 1,000 denarii. They have to get officials, local officials, and so then they hire guys, and then they set them out, and the pyramid scheme continues. If you're reading in the Gospels, we meet an official. His name is Zacchaeus, the little guy. Remember him? He's an official. Matthew is a local guy. Matthew sits on the roadside, and he collects tolls from people. Now, Matthew, in purchasing this office, has, has an opportunity, and he's also got a burden. He's got an opportunity because he's got to pay back that whatever it was he paid to buy the office. But he's also got an opportunity, doesn't he? Because in any good pyramid scheme, he's got an opportunity to jack up prices. He's got an opportunity to skim the cream off the top. He's just got to get to this part, and anything beyond that is complete gravy. Do you see where this is going, right? Do you see opportunity for corruption in this? I do. Walking into town one day, let's say with my four goats into Capernaum, and I meet Matthew. And I say, okay, Matthew, I'm transporting these goats from Jericho to now Capernaum, and I've got four goats for sale in the market in Capernaum. And Matthew says to me, okay, well, that's going to be the four goat tax, which is one denarius and five shekels. So I pay that tax. Next week, I come back with four new goats. And I walk up to Matthew and say, hey, Matthew, I've got my one denarius and four shekels. Here you go. And Matthew says, no, 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 no. That's not the price this week. The price this week is two denarius and five shekels. Well, uh, the price went up. What happened? Uh, 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 that doesn't seem fair, but I pay it. The next week I come back, and Matthew says, oh, I see you've got your four goats again. <laughs> the prices have gone up. And by the way, I, I can't help but notice that you're wearing a Los Angeles Clippers Kawhi Leonard jersey. <laughs> the four goat price today is 15 denarii and five shekels. And you step back and say, wait, how is this allowed? How can you scam people like this? Remember, this is subsistence culture. People don't read. There's no printed tax list anywhere. And what makes matters worse is Matthew, being a smart tax collector that he is, he has also hired two big oafs next to him that stand all day long with shields and swords. And they say, you know what? I say you pay. And guess what? These two guys say you pay as well. And if you don't want to trade in the city, you don't have to trade, but you can't come in unless you pay. Right, guys? And the two guys go, uh-huh. <laughs> Corruption, right? Corruption. Oh, and by the way, says Matthew to us one more time, uh, don't bother uh, talking to the authorities because the mayor of this town, he gets discounts on his goats. You see, what you're looking at here is not really a pyramid scheme. It's essentially first-century mafia Extortion stuff. Every single day, taking advantage of illiterate, 
subsistence-level people. That's a tax collector, despised. I think with good reason, despised. People shouting out to him in crowds. Hey, watch your back, man. Watch your back. Stealing from people when they can't even feed their kids. Taking their last dimes. Touching Gentile coins all day long. Shaking Gentile hands all day long. Maybe grew up in the temple, but you can't go to the temple now because every single day of your life, you're unclean. Can't go anywhere near the things of the Lord anymore. And what makes matters worse, you're going to be working every day of the week, aren't you? You're going to be a Sabbath breaker to make that even worse. Working with the Gentile occupiers, working for the man, the oppressors. You're a traitor to your own people. You're unclean. You're a scumbag. And then we read verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now that one more thing before we get to the good stuff. One more piece that's not immediately obvious. That verb for passed on means to go away. That's important. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus is not coming into town. He's leaving town. And they don't tax you when you leave town. They tax you when you come in. That means that this discussion that we're about to read, this is completely voluntary by Jesus. Jesus chooses to have this discussion. He's not the next in line to talk to this dirtbag tax collector. He crosses the street to see him. He intends to have the conversation. He sees this man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, verse 9, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Two words, follow me, and he did. Despised, unclean, sinner, scammer, thief, Sabbath breaker, tax collector, traitor to his own people, sitting every day on the outside of the city, taking people's money who can't afford to have it taken. I mean, maybe, maybe it started off well. Maybe there was a great design for something bigger. Maybe for Matthew it was the allure of money. The promises of having riches beyond even he can imagine. Maybe he grew up poor and he just dreamt of having a little bit more than what his friends would have. Uh, maybe, maybe the prospect of not having to dirty your hands with the work in the field or worrying about where the next paycheck would come from or where the next meal would come from. The possibility of maybe just maybe having more than one outfit or maybe just maybe having two rooms in my house or maybe just maybe having two goats in my life. But then day after day, day after day, as you take from the starving and the poor and the weak, and day after day, as you are despised by your very own people, the people that you grew up with, and the shame begins to build, and the weight upon your conscience begins to grow, and the possibility of a career change is just washed away because you will always be known. You will always be known as that guy who took, people, took money from people who couldn't afford it, from money from people who were starving. And you can't get back, and you can't get out. And then you see a man looking at you, looking into you from across the road. And he crosses through the dust and comes to you. And he's looking at you like he knows everything. Everything about you. From the arrogance to the fear to the anxiety to the shame to the discouragement to the despair. He sees you in trouble. He sees you lost. He sees you hated by your own people. He sees the hate you have for yourself. And he says, follow me. 
and the door opens and you take it. Matthew knows who he is and he knows he needs Jesus. Until you realize who you really are, you will never truly follow Jesus. Now Luke adds this interesting piece to Matthew's humble narrative about himself as he describes his own life as a self-portrait in this passage. Luke adds a detail that Matthew chooses not to add and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew stood up and left the money bags. He stood up and left the rosters. He stood up and left the bodyguards. He stood up and left the prosperity of the future and the, and the security of the future. He left the money and he left that all behind, but he also left behind with it the shame and the guilt and the life that was going nowhere. He stands up and he walks away from it all and he walks to Jesus. And some people say, okay, you know what, he's just taking a stretch. He's not, it's not a, come on, that's not a major life change that's just happened on the side of the road. That, that's not a major life change. That's not a major life change. Look at, look at the fruit that follows from Matthew's life. How do I know that this is major, that something has happened in Matthew's life? Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The very next scene, one second here, we went from a road to a house. What happened between verses 9 and 10? We don't know what happened except to know that somehow Jesus has been brought into a house. And Mark and Luke tell us that this is actually Matthew's house. Matthew has opened up his home. Do you see the fruit that's immediately evident in Matthew's life? This is life change right here, people. He's left everything he had. All the security, all the stability, all the money, he left it all behind. He left the things he was clinging to. And he walked right to Jesus. And what's more, he then brought Jesus into everything he had. And take it all. You come and enjoy what I have and what I have been given. And, and the nice things that Matthew had been able to purchase, Jesus is now a part of as this feast is there. Luke tells us, in fact, that it's a great feast that Jesus has been invited to. And, and then uh, not only do we see he's left stuff behind, but then he's also welcomed Jesus in. But then you notice this thirdly, he's also invited people to be a part of it. You've got to come. You've got to see. You've got to meet this guy that I just met. Matthew has found this great treasure. Matthew's found life. By the way, my, why is Matthew's home filled with sinners and tax collectors? We read many of them, right? It says there, many of them. Why is Matthew's home filled with these kinds of people? Because these kinds of people are the only friends the man has. He's a social outcast. He's unclean. He's despised by the Jews and the Gentiles. He's a nobody, and his friends are outcasts too. He's got social nobodies hanging around him. He's got unclean people hanging around him. He's got despised people hanging around him. And he opens his home and invites them for dinner and invites Jesus to come for dinner. And Jesus says, perfect. I'd love to come. A tax collector doesn't need to be told that he's a person in need. A tax collector doesn't need to be told that he's actually not all right. A tax collector doesn't need to be told that he's actually not a model citizen. He knows he's got problems. He knows he needs help. He knows brokenness. A room filled with these kinds of people and a meal shared with these kinds of people is a perfect place for Jesus. 
And Jesus says, I'd love to come. There's a song out there by uh, Casting Crowns I really like. Maybe we'll sing it here one day. I don't have that kind of pull. I can't make that happen. Um, but here's the lyrics of the song. I really like it. It's called Nobody. Um, Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told that I belong at the end of a line. With all the other not quites. With all the never get it rights. And look at this. This is beautiful. But it turns out they are the ones you were looking for all this time. I know I need. I know I'm broken. I know I can't do it. I know I don't have the ability. I can't do it on my own. The selfishness that's in me, it affects my home, affects my wife, affects my kids, my lack of desire for the right things, my overwhelming desire for the things that are wrong in my life, the constant pursuit of wanting approval of those around me, and the feeling that I never measure up. I know I'm broken, and I'm sick. And Jesus' voice comes through Matthew's story for us, too. Oh, I know who you are, Craig. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Not a system, not a rule book, not a set of regulations, not a self-improvement plan. Follow me. Christianity is about following the person of Jesus, this Jesus who would sacrifice his life for me, that as we would read some chapters later, this Jesus who was willing to go to the cross for me, this Jesus who was willing to have his na hands nailed and his feet nailed, this Jesus who was willing to be struck and spat upon, this Jesus who was hung from a Roman cross, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by the men he came to save, this Jesus who gave his life for me and took my sins upon his shoulders that he might be crushed and the sins might be paid for that I might find life in him and hope in him and freedom in him and joy in him and him. This Jesus calls me to himself. And the great truth of the gospel rings true again that you do not need to be perfect to find Jesus. You need to be broken and you need to know that you're broken before you can find him. Jesus is not for perfect people here today. Jesus is for broken nobodies. If you're sitting here today saying, I'm perfect, I got my act together, this is not gonna work between you and Jesus. Jesus is for people who know they need him. And until you realize who you really are, you will never truly follow Jesus. And this is a truth for all of us in this room today. It's a truth for you if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to realize, to recognize, to see the brokenness in my life and to turn in repentance towards Jesus and to find hope and forgiveness of sins, to leave behind the old life, to place faith in him and by believing in him, Take him in as the center of your life. But that's, that's truth for you today, but it's truth for us today in Jesus Christ, who've been in Jesus Christ, who've forgotten this truth, who somehow believe in our hearts that we need to get better before we can go to Jesus. We need to get ourselves fixed up and cleaned up before we can come to Jesus. But the truth comes to us today, to our heart today, that we're not in that place. We'll never be in that place apart from Jesus Christ. And then for us to turn and repent of self-sufficiency, and repent of self-righteousness. And turn away from the enemy's accusations that say you're not good enough. 
and run to the Lord who says, follow me. Jesus just needs you to need him. And that's the truth. Well, this perfect dinner for Jesus, filled with uh, people who know that they need him, is a perfect place for Jesus. But it is ruined by people who are the complete opposite. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I just got a quick side question here. How do the Pharisees get into these places? Like, they're like the first century Debbie Downers, right? They're like, everything's going good. Jesus is doing amazing miracles. And all of a sudden, these guys show up. Like, it's just going on and on again. Pharisees, can I remind you? These are a religious elite. They're big on memorizing the Old Testament scriptures. Very, very low on believing them. And way low. Not even registering in a love for the God who wrote them. Pharisees are making up rules and regulations and tying people and chaining people to, wait for it, religion. These people aren't around anymore today. Or maybe they are. And we understand, don't we, that this is not a serious inquiry we're reading here in verse 11. This is not a, oh, I just have a legit question here. Uh, why, do your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? No, 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 that's not how this is understood. We understood that this is a condescending, valley girl, coffee holding, Apple phone texting. Uh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> That's the kind of question you're getting there. This condescending, greater than thou, ugh, question. Meanwhile, back at the party, the needle scratches, and Jesus turns, and he hears it, which, by the way, I don't think this is supernatural divine hearing going on here, like Jesus read the minds of the critics earlier that we read. This is, this is a actually heard it kind of thing. And I know this because there are ways of talking to one person to make yourself be heard by the entire room. That's, I think, what's going on here. Condemning the entire room. However it happens, Jesus hears and he responds with pure gold, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We get this, right? Sick people go to doctors, not people who are healthy. Maybe you've got a story where you were healthy, you got a checkup, and they found something, and you had to get that taken care of. But for most of us, when you get sick, you go to the doctor. That's what Jesus is saying. If you are sick and you know you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you don't know you're sick, if you don't feel like you're sick, you're never going to get off the couch. Here's the deeper meaning once again. Until you realize who you really are and your need for him, you will never really truly follow Jesus. The kind of people who follow Jesus are sick people. I wrote this in my note, and all God's people said... <coughs> Sick people follow Jesus. And this takes us to the second point. We've seen the life of Matthew, and I want you to see this. Point number two is the death of religion. The death of religion. Jesus' words ring true again in verse 13. I'll just wait for you to write down the death of religion. 
I love you, note takers. I just don't want you to miss the most important verse that we're going to read. Okay. Verse 13. We're ready? Look at Jesus' words. They're at the center of what we need to see today. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the key. What does that mean? Now, the first half of that verse is a direct quote from the Old Testament. You can see maybe even the quoting marks around that thing. And it, it points, maybe your, your Bible even tells you that's from Hosea chapter 6. A little context about what Hosea chapter 6 is, because it's pure gold why Jesus chose this particular quote and not something similar from elsewhere. Okay, Hosea was written to the northern tribes of Israel. And, and, and the northern tribes of Israel, remember uh, the, the nation of Israel under King David and King Solomon, then after him, there was a civil war after Solomon died and the nation was cracked in half, uh, tribes to the north and tribes to the south. Most of them went to the north. The, the south had some good kings along the way. Uh, the north had no good kings. And it was filled with increasing wickedness throughout its entire existence to the point that it was so wicked at one point that God brought in Assyria, the ancient armies of Assyria, to conquer them and take them away into captivity. It's a time of spiritual decadence, of materialism, of, of, of outwardly demonstrating that we're religious, but inwardly our hearts are broken and corrupt. That's Hosea's time. And Hosea's message over and over again is about the love and the mercy of a God to an unfaithful, adulterous people who practice this righteousness on the outside, but inwardly they have their hearts that have left the Lord. And Jesus picks that quote from that book and says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want your mercy, not your external displays. You could go to the temple every single day if you like. You could sacrifice a thousand sheep on a thousand different days, but it won't do anything if you don't love me. External displays of religion will not find you life, but will lead you to your destruction. You may think you got it going on because you're presenting that you got it going on, but inside your heart is far from the Lord. But still, the external displays continue. This is a problem of the human heart, isn't it? Let's just do what this deity says so we can get what we want. Let's just do what he says so we can get what we want. Let's just try and control the deity and make ourselves the deity so that we can get what we want. That's every religion in the world. That's every religion in the world. Got bad crops? Okay, let's sacrifice a goat today. It's been a bad year of crops. Let's sacrifice a child. Bad weather? Throw more money into the offering at the temple. Bad time at business? Throw more money in the offering plates at the building. No kids yet? Say a prayer on this many times in that direction. Let's do what he says so we can get what we want. But God calls again and again and again. It's not about your sacrifices. It's not about your outward displays. It's about your inward displays. I want mercy from the heart, not sacrifice with the hands. I want your heart not your empty hymn singing. I want your heart, not your hollow offerings. I want your heart, not your hollow works of service. I want you to recognize that you need me and you can't do it without me. I don't want you to think that you can do it in this life. I don't want your false abilities. I want you to recognize your weakness. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. You see, what Jesus does here is two things. With that one verse, he completely eviscerates, and church, I have waited all sermon long to say that word. 
eviscerates is a good word. It guts them. He eviscerates the Pharisees, wait for it, religion, and upholds the truth of the Old Testament scriptures and points to the fact that they have always been about the heart for God. It wasn't ever do what I say and sacrifice on this day and give me your heart. It was always about give me your heart first. The heart leads to behavior. See, this is the big difference between religion. I put this chart together to kind of explain the difference. On one side, religion, whatever it is, put in, put in whatever. And follow a program. Real Christianity follows a person, Jesus. Religion embraces a personal capability. You can do it if you try hard enough, if you follow this five-step plan, if you do these ten things. Real Christianity embraces a personal neediness in Jesus. Can't do it. Religion pursues a self-improvement plan. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Look at me. I'm doing better. I've got the list checked. Real Christianity pursues a brokenness and an inability apart from Jesus. Apart from you, we can do nothing, Jesus. Here's another one. Religion is strengthened by looking at others, like Pharisee looking at others. <laughs> Look at that guy. Look at us. Real Christianity is strengthened by looking at Jesus. Look at the one who loved me, even though I am who I am. Religion thrives in finding fault with others. Real Christianity thrives in finding fault with self before Jesus, not condemning ourselves, but bringing our sins to Jesus and delighting in his forgiveness of us. Religion postures through outward displays. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Whereas real Christianity produces fruit from the heart from an inward neediness for Jesus. Here's the last thing, it's the most key. Religion leads to death, but real Christianity leads to Jesus, who is life. The trouble, of course, comes when these two get mixed up, sometimes even in the same building. And maybe you've been living your life like that, Good indicator that you're not in this place. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of contentment. There's not a lot of peace because you're living over here in this place. Many of us have, have been burned by people that say they are this but have been living like this. God's word comes back to us and says it's always about the heart. It's always about the heart. But my heart, my heart is, is, is lost and broken, says God's word. It is constantly trying to deceive me, constantly telling to tell me, oh, you're okay, Craig, you're okay, Craig, you're okay, Craig. My heart's fine, Craig, you can do it, Craig, you're better than that guy, Craig. You see the Phariseeism that comes into my heart too? Maybe just, maybe just me. Let me put it this way, less than my last illustration. You may have... Uh, Looked at the story, and you can see, okay, there's Matthew. He understands his neediness. He understands his brokenness. This guy was stealing from poor people and stealing bread out of people's mouths. This guy, Matthew, understands who he was. On the other side of the story, you got the Pharisees. And look at this, the outward display. Is, look at me. I know what I, I got it all together. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Maybe today you're sitting there saying, okay, look. All right. I'm not like that today. But I'm definitely not like that today. I'm not walking around in the church afterwards going, look at me, look at me. 
I'm so holy, I'm so amazing. But I'm not, I'm not like right there, though. I'm, I'm more like in the middle, like this house here. I'm more like that. That's me. See, that's, that's, I'm not saying I'm that. But I'm definitely not in that place. See, I got a nice little tidy house. I did some work on it. Put the beams together. All of those cracks are filled up with Jesus in my life. Me and Jesus, doing it together. Me and Jesus. I got my strengths, he's got his, we're working together. I think what we're seeing from the text of today's scripture is that for this house and this house, they are far from the kingdom of God. Any personal ability brought before the Lord saying, look at me, I'm not like that guy, I'm not like that guy, but I got stuff apart from brokenness and neediness before Christ. We do not find the kingdom of God. That's the truth. Jesus comes to us and says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Not the people who think they got it together, but the people who know they don't. That's the kind of people who follow Jesus. And that's the kind of people who rejoice in being found by Jesus. In the life in the forgiveness, in the hope, in the peace, in the endurance, in the joy that is found in him and only him. And until we realize the kind of people we really are and our need for him, we will never truly follow Jesus. May the Lord lead our hearts to a place like this. Maybe even may the Lord lead our hearts back to a place like this. Maybe doing that even now through his word.